Originally, when I was doing this series, I planned on preaching from Ezekiel 33 through 39. Um, As I prepared to preach this series, as I did the background work on the book, and as I've been preaching through these messages, uh, I've realized that we haven't hit one of the biggest themes in Ezekiel's writing, and we're not going to hit it in this passage tonight. So I've decided that next week I'm going to hit that theme. So we'll be in Ezekiel one more week after tonight. So we'll do this one and then we're actually going to, we're going to be back to the future a little bit uh, next week. You'll see what I mean when we get there. But we're going to hit a theme that really we haven't been able to hit yet. It's very important in Ezekiel's work. So so we're going to do that next week and then we'll be done with this series uh, I don't know if you caught it in the announcement loop, but Pastor Joe will be preaching in a couple of weeks on uh, Sunday night. So uh, Pastor Joe's from Uganda doing some work down there. And we had him here last year about this time of year. So he'll be back again that night. So um, so looking forward to hear from him what, what God is doing and um, the kinds of things that are going on in Uganda. Then we'll have a week of prayer uh, the following week. Uh, on Sunday night, but we did a we did a prayer night uh, back a few months ago, and it was it was pretty powerful and well received. And so we're going to do that again, uh, and then and then we'll have Labor Day weekend, and then we'll be into a new series. So uh, I'm kind of I have a couple of weeks where I'm not preaching, so I have a little bit more time to to finish out the final final things in that series. But we'll be on to that pretty soon. Ezekiel 39. We, we've been talking about this idea of that they may know. We're finding that all of God's work, that God does an incredible amount of work in human history. Anybody that says that God is this clockmaker that makes the clock, winds it up, and then leaves it to itself has not read the scripture because the God of the Bible is not a divine clockmaker that just sets the clock in motion and then doesn't do anything else. He is actively involved throughout human history. And the book of Ezekiel shows us that. The book of Ezekiel shows us how in sending his people into exile that God is at work. How in calling them back out of exile, back home, the promise of a, of a time to come in which he will gather them from the nations and bring them back. God is at work. Both in judgment and in redemption. Both in judging sin and in redeeming his people. God is at work. And all of it is so that we may know that he is God. I see all the time people post Psalm 4610, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Of course, they usually don't get that far. They usually just say, be still. And then they stop there as if that's the end of the verse. And that's not the end of the verse. Or they say, be still and know that I'm God. You know, it's like, like, like the rest of the verse is an afterthought. But what's interesting is, it's like a stair step. Being still is the step that leads to the higher step of knowing who's God. What I find is that God often puts us in places and in predicaments, in scenarios and situations in circumstances that are completely beyond our control because he's seeking for us to take the next step. 
in the midst of those circumstances and scenarios and situations, in the midst of all of the pain and anxiety and anguish and suffering, he wants us to go beyond experiencing the situation to a level of experiencing him. That biblical knowledge, that's not just head knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. That's why it says Adam knew his wife. It's an experiential sort of knowing that goes beyond just the cognitive and gets into the relatable, I have been through this. I know this from experience. I have lived life with someone else. And so I know in a way that my mind wouldn't have known otherwise. So when it says, you have searched me and known me, in Psalm 139, It's a knowledge that is beyond just the cognitive, just the mental, just the intellectual knowing. It's the experiential. Now, I'm not saying that you should just have the experiential without the cognitive. But I am saying, if we are going to know He is God, it's got to go beyond just what we hear, what we think, what we assent to what creed we may sign off on. It must get to a personal living relationship. And so tonight as we close this series out somewhat, as we're getting to the end of chapter 39, I want you to remember just for a minute where we've been. In chapter 33, Ezekiel restates his calling. Remember, Ezekiel was called as a watchman. He was called to to watch out and to declare the dangers that were coming, declare uh, the sword that was on its way, to declare the, the impending doom so that others may have the opportunity to rescue themselves. We see, as Ezekiel is a watchman, we also see we are watchmen called to warn those around us, called to deliver the word of God that we have been given. Whether we are preachers or not preachers, God has given all of us his word and has commanded us to deliver it to the people around us that they may take shelter in the day of doom. We ask the question, along with God asking Israel, why will you die? Why would you die? I know you see my impending judgment and you think this is the end and so you're just going to give up and quit. Why would you die? Why wouldn't you seek to restore? Why wouldn't you seek the restoration? We see how a man who turns from his wickedness and turns to righteousness is not judged for his wickedness because God takes his repentance and credits it for his righteousness. And how God takes a righteous man who turns from his righteousness and turns toward wickedness and puts him on the hot seat and says, you're not getting away with this. Just because you've been good before does not mean I will not hold you account to your sins. Then Jeremiah receives word, Jerusalem is in ashes. The prophet weeps. And what's amazing 
is that through all this, what you would think would be the worst news is actually the beginning of the restoration because now people are willing to listen to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, to other men like him. People don't listen to prophets when everything's going well. But now when disaster strikes, people want to know what God says. Do you remember that September day 18 years ago? A couple of planes were hijacked. Two of them hit the World Trade Center buildings. One hit the Pentagon. There were others that had planned to have other destinations that passengers fought back. And in all of that disaster, people were desperate to hear what God had to say. It's something interesting. Disaster just brings us to that point. We moved on and we began to look at the shepherds of Israel, the men who had been charged with with taking care of God's people who were just fattening up themselves instead of taking care of their sheep. And how God said, I'm getting rid of the bad shepherds. I'm going to be your shepherd. And when the good shepherd takes over, man, it makes a dramatic difference. He makes a covenant of peace with them to banish the wild beasts, to make the land fruitful and plentiful to make the waters worth drinking, to make the fruit so luscious, to make everything the way that it ought to be because God's dealt with the sin problem and now he can deliver the blessings that he wants to deliver his people. We've also seen how he turns toward Edom. Remember, we were talking about the story of a grudge that's been held through the ages of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Even when their forefather had forgiven his brother for the wrong that he had done, the descendants could not forgive the Israelites, but held the grudge, held the grudge, held the grudge with white knuckles until finally it brought about their destruction. And God says, prophesy against Mount Seir. Prophesy against them because they turned their back on Israel in Israel's day of calamity. Instead of offering a place of refuge to their brothers, they came and kicked the Israelites while they were down. They mocked Judah in its destruction. They were opportunists seeking to take over more land, caring more about them getting back at their brothers than them showing mercy. God reminded us that he is concerned about his holy name even when his people are profaning it. He will not let it be profaned. He will exact judgment 
And the reason the Israelites went into exile was not because God was too weak to defend them. It was because God lifted his hand off of them so that their sin could be punished, so that God could root out the problem and deal with them according to their sin. And then, and then rectify his holy name by restoring them. Putting his spirit within them. Changing them completely from the inside out. And then Ezekiel is whisked away to a valley full of dried up bones. And asks the question, can these bones live? Turns out they can. Prophesy to the wind. Prophesy to the bones. Bone comes to bone. Flesh and, and and skin and, and sinews and ligaments and organs all form into these bodies. Prophesy to the wind and the wind comes and breathes life into this vast army standing ready, willing, and able to do the God's work. Can these bones live? And then we saw him take two sticks Signify the unity of a people that had been long divided. Last week we talked about God. One who thought he could amass the armies and attack Israel. They're weak. They're in a place of hopelessness. There's nothing they can do to defend them. And they don't need to. Because God God is the one who brought Gog and everyone else to that city. God is the one who has all things in control. Now hear the word of the Lord in Ezekiel 39, 25. Therefore thus says the Lord God, I don't know if he is, I'm not so convinced that he's just putting this in that local context of what just came before. I, I almost think he's summarizing the last few chapters. That he's going back to 39 or 33 and pulling all of this in and saying in light of all of this, whenever you see a therefore in the scripture, you need to find out what therefore is therefore. And so with all of this background, we now know what the therefore is therefore. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore. You know what that word is? It's the prophet's favorite word. It's the same word we get repent from. Here we have God saying, I've been dealing with you in a particular way. I've been dealing with you in account of your sin. I have been dealing with you based on your bad works. But now I will restore. I will repent. I will turn around from dealing with you according to your sin. And now I will deal with you according to my name, according to my righteousness, according to my actions, according to my character, 
I am done dealing with your sin. I have dealt with it. It is done. Now I will deal with you according to my character. And what that means is I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. That is not to say he is going to make them rich again. That is to say he is going to give them the kind of life that they were supposed to have. That fortunes is a way of living life. It's not just money in the bank. It's not just a good time, luck. No. It's a way of living life the way that God meant you to live. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. That's just like God, isn't it? I have yet to find God acting in wrath without then acting in mercy. Let me explain what I mean. Look at the book of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no. God says, uh, yeah, right. You're going to go to Nineveh. A whale and a few days later, Jonah's on a beach. God says, it's like a time. Go to Nineveh. Jonah says, all right. <laughs> and starts to go to Nineveh. When he gets to Nineveh, he preaches probably the worst evangelistic sermon in the history of evangelistic sermons. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And they repent. I mean, man, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? In 40 days, you're going to die. <laughs> and, and people say, I believe in Jesus. You know, wouldn't that be amazing? That's exactly what happens. They repent of their sin. The king calls for it. What happens? God spares Nineveh. God doesn't act in wrath just for wrath's sake. When God acts in wrath, he's dealing with sin. I'll give you another example. You think, book of Revelation. Well, how about the book of Revelation? God throws people into the lake of fire. I mean, isn't that kind of final? Yeah, it is for them. But that's a wrath that they brought on themselves because they refused to repent. What I find is that when God deals with the sin of his people, They repent of that sin. That's it. There's no more wrath after repentance. Now they might, you might be sorry that you, you got caught, but we're not always sorry for what we did, are we? At least, not until God does the work. Because once God starts working on you, man, you really start to feel sorry. You feel sorry for stuff he's already forgiven. Don't do that. I heard someone say today, one of the most interesting things, he said, um, 
people ask him all the time about all kinds of different things and um, arguing with him on atheist perspectives and things like that. And he always says, what do you do with your guilt? But he's never had a person be able to honestly give an answer for what they did with their guilt. See, there's no rescuing from guilt without repentance. Now there's come a day when Israel has repented, repented, and God says, all right, the wrath is done. Now I will have mercy. Not from sin, but changing the way that he deals with you. I'll no longer deal with you according to that sin. It is gone. It is canceled. Reminds me of something else. Reminds me of someone else who said, sin is paid for. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And I will be jealous for my holy name. There it is again. If God wasn't God, I would think he's pretty selfish. But then again, when you're God, and your name is great and greatly to be praised, it's only fitting and proper that it get the praise that he deserves. They, verse 26, they shall forget their shame. I love that. Raise your hand if you'd like to forget your shame. Yeah. There's coming a day when we'll forget. There's coming a day when God does his work to completion and there is no more shame. That right there ought to make you want to say amen. That right there ought to make you want to smile. If any of you are going to dance, that's the line to dance to. Thank you for not dancing. I appreciate that. Y'all don't want to see me dance either. I'll, I'll do. I'll, I guess I'll do the sneaky dance. Anyway, they shall forget their sin. What a great promise of God! You, you, what a great promise of God! There will be no more shame. It won't stick in your head. It won't be back there all the time reminding you. Hey, you remember that thing you did that you shouldn't do? Oh, what if they found out? What if they knew? That would be terrible. No more shame. It is done. And all the treachery they have practiced against me. What I find interesting about this is how many of you I, I think of a person that had I knew someone who, late, late in his life, probably in his 90s, came to the Lord, which is very rare. Uh, maybe he's cramming for finals, I don't know. He came, this was when I was in high school, so he's long gone now, but he came into our class, and he said it had been 
just a few years since he had come to faith. He did what any 90-year-old would do who came to faith in the Lord. He ate up scripture. Like he just he read it constantly. He memorized large portions of it. We picked out a random chapter of scripture and he recited it for us. Now, I mean, he gave us like pick something within this book. We picked a chapter and it was not a chapter like um, Psalm one, where it's only like five verses. I mean, this was this was in the book of Revelation. And so he's talking, it's a chapter talking about the new heaven. And it's listing all of these details of what heaven looks like and all of these different metals and golds and or, or all of these gems that are in the walls and all this kind of stuff. And he's reciting it word for word. And the guy's only been saved for like five years. But even he, Even he in his old age remembered those bad words that he had learned as a kid. Even he in his old age could remember those things that he had done that he shouldn't have done. Those times when he rebelled against God. I bet if you ask Joe Northington, he could tell you that he could remember things that he did. Years and years and years ago, man's been Christian for 70 plus years and he could still tell you about times before he knew the Lord. We don't forget how to do the wrong things, do we? There's some things you forget. I haven't done it in so long I've forgotten how to do that. But we don't forget how to sin. And yet God says, they will forget all the treachery they have practiced against me. It's like they don't even know how to sin anymore. Talk about changing life. This is a life change right here. So pure that you don't even know how to sin. When they dwell securely in their land, with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands. I, I, I see there's two different levels that this is working on. There's one level where he is dealing with the people of Israel and he is calling them back from all the lands to bring them back into the place where he has for them. But then there's, there's this other level that it's working on where it almost is like he's calling the people out of places from all over the world and he's calling them back to his home, back to the place where he is. And as he's doing that, it's almost as if the people of God finally get home. There's a hymn. I'm kind of homesick for a country which I've never been before. I think he's playing on both levels here. I don't know if he realizes, I don't know if Ezekiel realizes the greater scope of what he's saying, but I do know there is coming a day when God gets us all home. And when that day comes, 
our transformation will be complete. And through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. He's still worried about God. I used to think God didn't care what people think. But he's got this driving passion for everybody to know who he is. Don't believe me? Have you not been reading in Ezekiel? <laughs> that seems to be all Ezekiel is concerned with. All that God is telling Ezekiel, everything, it's so that they will know that I'm the Lord. They will know that I'm the Lord. That they may know that I'm the Lord. That I may vindicate my holy name and they may know that I'm the Lord. Everything revolves around, in God's mind, everything is revolving around Him being God and everybody knowing it. Because ever since that day in the garden where Eve took the fruit and gave some to Adam, we have been intentionally blinded to God. We have hidden our faces from Him. We have refused to go up the mountain to hear God speak and instead sent representatives. We have refused to listen to the voice of God and instead have turned to fake idols. We have refused to hear the prophets calling us back to God time and time again. Repent, repent, repent. We have refused all of that. We stare at the face of Jesus and we mock Him and spit on Him and put a crown of thorns on His head and nail Him to a cross because it's much easier to deal with Him dead than it is to look into his eyes and know that he knows that we're sinners. Time after time after time we've rejected God. But for those who don't, he becomes their sole passion. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their home. If God only sent them into exile, the vast majority of them would say, the vast majority of people I'm looking would say, God wasn't big enough. God had just taken a scattered people and brought them together, people would look on and say, that's luck. The conditions were just right. just happened that way. But when you see a people scattered, chained, and then brought back together, When you see a people who don't belong together suddenly in the same room communing with one another that makes you wonder what's the bond? And that bond is Christ. The bond is Christ even among the people of Israel who don't even recognize their Messiah when he shows up. Something tells me 
And God brings this about among the nation of Israel. And God finally brings them all together and does the work within that nation, within that people. They'll recognize who the Messiah is. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. So complete is God's rescue effort that he brings them all back. Every single one. He's not the shepherd with 99 sheep. He says, oh well, I still got 99. It's the shepherd that makes sure even the 100 is safe and And then this last verse. In case you're thinking, well, well, this is all good and, and great and, and, and it's wonderful, but what about the next time? God says there ain't going to be a next time. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. And I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. When you give someone your spirit, so to speak, when you, when you pour out on them who you are, when you have such intimate fellowship with them, you can't hide your face anymore. coming a day and we'll no longer see the back of his head. We'll look eye to eye. Now I don't know if we'll literally be able to see his face in the way that I see your faces when you see mine. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I don't know if it's going to be so bright that we really can't see and we just see this Mass of light. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but I do know this. He's not hiding his face anymore. There is coming a day when God makes the wrong things right. When he takes an already but not yet people. turns them into a final day. There's coming a day when he who was and who is and who is to come is no longer called that. And he's only called who was and who is. Because he's already come. Even so, Father, I pray that your word penetrates our hearts. I pray that you would move your spirit throughout this place. Etch the words on the deepest parts of our souls. 
you Sharpie. Don't don't use just a washable marker. Don't use a pencil. Don't use a crayon. Try to use a sharpie. Use use the most permanent ink that you can possibly have. Put it so permanently on. That even tomorrow morning, people will be able to tell the difference. That even a year from now, people will be able to see the change. And in eternity future, when you finish making us, and we really, truly, completely are whole, that day, that day, may we see that you don't have very far to transform us into because you've been transforming us the whole time. May we be ever closer to you ever closer to the image of your son walking daily in your spirit making you praised and honored and glorified may we be Thank you for everything you've spoken through Ezekiel. Thank you for everything that you have spoken through all of your prophets. Through your law. Through the Gospels. And Acts. And through letters written to churches nearly 2,000 years ago. God, I pray that you would continue to use your word to transform hearts, to change lives to bring your name the honor and glory that you deserve. Be with us this week. In Christ's name we pray.